This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The following podcast is equivalent to a TVMA rating, thanks to the author's strong and frequent use of adult language and graphic recollection of her sexual escapades. We strongly advise listening alone or with an extremely open-minded, politically incorrect companion such as a gay bestie. Welcome to Season 2 of How Bitches Are Made. I'm your host, Rachel Melvin. A reminder to check out Season 1 of How Bitches Are Made, including our introductory mini-sode, which explains to you the cycle of how a bitch is made and fully prepares you to embark on that journey with us. A special thank you to all of our listeners who have supported this podcast from the beginning and continue to do so now. And without further ado, we'll continue on with Season 2 with this week's story. The following is a true story, as sad as that is for me to admit. Names have been changed to protect the innocent and the anything but. Chapter 12, Crash Course. I can count on one hand all the times I've been sick in my life. There was last Christmas, when I couldn't fart without charting, the time I contracted the swine flu, although looking back, that may have just been a visceral reaction to the pig I was dating, and the time I got food poisoning from a lobster taco back in seventh grade. Unfortunately, that would be the first of three separate occasions I'd experienced the pleasure of having it come out both ends. The second was back in my early 20s. My friend Shannon and I had met at our friend Lorena's to work on some content we'd been self-producing at the time. Feeling somewhat nauseous that morning, I opted out of my usual breakfast of oatmeal and a banana and chose what seemed to be the safer, albeit stranger, option of cantaloupe in Tupperware. See, now this is why you can't gain weight, sweetie. Look at what you eat for breakfast. I'm only eating this because I woke up feeling nauseous and it seemed like the safest choice. If you're sick, you need to get away from me right now. I cannot be ill for my wedding. I'm getting married before you. Neither of your weddings are for another two months. Still, we can't afford for you to infect us, Rachel. Do you know how much my dress cost? I did. Aside from her ring, it was all Shannon ever talked about, which is something I've never understood about former friends of mine who somehow managed to get engaged before me. They always seemed far more excited about the rock, the fabric, or the party they'd be throwing than they did the person they'd be spending the rest of their lives with. Really, sweetie? We can't get sick. You need to go home until whatever this is passes. It's my personal belief that people who fear contagion are the same people who often find themselves contracting illnesses in the first place, (coughs) even if the infected person they're in contact with is fighting something as non-contagious or threatening as food poisoning, or if it's merely a phantom illness someone's created just to escape a day's work. And although the latter certainly wasn't the case in this particular instance, I was starting to realize that the former absolutely was. The familiar onset of food poisoning is embedded in me like the elastic hair ties I often forget to take off my wrist before bedtime. I recognize the symptoms all too well. 
The drastic drop in body temperature just before shivering gives way to violent contractions of inexplicable sweat. The meal you loved from the night before that now, just mentioning the name of is enough to make you dry heave. And the instant panic that comes with knowing your body is about to betray you in the very worst of ways. I felt the heat intensify in my temples, a feeling I can best describe by comparing to the visual aid of a dog putting its tail between its legs. It was all I needed to know I was about to be in serious trouble as well. And just like that, I found myself beelining for Lorena's bathroom just in time to feel my ribs touch. As it turned out, cantaloupe wound up being a very smart choice. Not only did it overpower the smell of bile transferring from my stomach lining into Lorena's toilet bowl, it even managed to leave a pretty decent taste in my mouth despite the circumstances. I came out of the bathroom a few minutes later, stabilizing my clammy and swaying body by resting it on the doorframe beside me. Hey, guys. I just threw up. You threw up? Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it home. I'm really lightheaded. Do you think one of you could drive me? Are you crazy? Lorena approached me, carrying what she had packed up of my things, and urgently began ushering me out her front door. Sweetie, I promise you, you can drive. I really don't think I can. It's all in your head. You'll be fine. Especially if you leave sooner than later. Call us when you're feeling better. And just like that, I was out in the cold. Unbeknownst to me, I'd soon be out cold as well. After the drive home, upon which I informed my mother of how shitty I was feeling and how shitty my friends were, I arrived at my building only to wake to the sound of EMTs banging on my apartment door hours later. Rachel, how you doing? Are you feeling okay? Um, what's going on? Your mom said you didn't sound so good when you were on the phone earlier, so she got worried when she couldn't get a hold of you ever since. I wasn't sure why they were talking to me like I was a guest star on an episode of SVU. Or the way any American talks to someone whose first language is in English. But I suppose it had everything to do with how disoriented I looked and felt. What, what time is it? 8-11. PM? Yes. We're going to take your vitals now, okay? As a hot EMT strapped the Velcro of a blood pressure device around my bicep, I did my best to calculate how it was I managed to pass out for nearly nine hours in the middle of the day, without any recollection whatsoever. Apparently, treating the cramping of food poisoning, like the cramping of your period with a heating pad, only aggravates and multiplies the bacteria percolating inside, and the pain can get intense enough to make a person pass out, which is precisely what it had done to me. When my vitals proved stable enough to be left alone, I assured the lead paramedic that I could be, even though it was only a desperate attempt to get them out the door before the borrowed time I knew I was on expired. After all, it's a rare occasion you'd want even your family within earshot of the obscene. So when it comes to EMTs that look like they've come straight out of LA casting, you do everything within your power to get them out that door as soon as humanly possible. If you change your mind, give us a call at this number. We'll come take you to the ER, all right? Okay, thank you. Moments later, I curled into the fetal position on the floor of my bathroom, pressed up against the base of my one and only true friend. As I felt myself drifting toward unconsciousness once more, it suddenly dawned on me how easy it would be to fall asleep and never wake up again, especially when I considered what little recollection I had of doing so hours before, and how much time had elapsed once I had. Gathering what little strength I had then, I peeled myself off the honeycomb tiles that had been cooling me down, and knowing my friends couldn't be counted upon, 
called the ambulance to turn back around and take me to the infamous Cedars-Sinai. Several hours and several doses of morphine later, I learned what I'd actually had was a severe allergic reaction to an enzyme found in raw almonds. A fact particularly interesting to me, as Shannon herself was deathly allergic to nuts. So, naturally, I couldn't help but nut milk the irony for all it was worth the next time we all met up. They pretty much said I have an allergy to almonds. Which is funny, because here you were thinking I was contagious, but maybe you're the one that gave that to me. I knew the idea was about as ridiculous as them immediately thinking I was contagious to begin with. But I wanted them to realize it too, and perhaps feel a tinge of guilt, at least enough to apologize for how they treated me. But there was little regret, if any, let alone acknowledgement. In fact, they seemed to take the potential of what could have happened to them far more seriously than what had happened to me. And, as time would reveal, that would ultimately become the theme in both of these friendships, particularly the one I had with Lorena. It was the 3rd of July when I found myself driving back to Los Angeles from my parents' home in Northern California. As is typically the case, I left early enough in the morning to where the rising sun would prompt my biological clock awake, should road hypnosis kick in around hour three. But somewhere amongst the sunrise and the sound of Taylor Swift singing Out of the Woods, something else jolted me into acute consciousness. What looked like an explosion of confetti raining down on the highway behind me. Like broken shards of glass, each piece sparkled and shimmered as it caught the light of daybreak and thus my attention. It took just a moment for me to realize that what I was actually seeing was in fact broken shards of glass, jetting out from a plume of smoke and debris that was collecting on the highway behind me. The further down the asphalt I got, the wider the scope in my rearview mirror stretched, until at last, the full picture was clear. A seemingly weightless vehicle, cartwheeling across the freeway as though God himself had simply flicked it like a coin. Oh my God, oh my God. It was all I could say, as my brain struggled to process the image of a man hugging the airbag in front of him, while the vehicle he sat trapped inside repeatedly rolled over, throwing him around like a rag doll. I couldn't believe how such destructive chaos could also appear so delicate and ethereal when moving in what felt like slow motion. My adrenaline immediately kicked in, causing me to pull over and dial 911. I wasn't sure what information I'd be able to provide to the operator, especially when sheer speed had already brought me so far down the freeway and away from the scene. But it was all I could think to do in the wake of such helplessness. 911, what's your emergency? Hi, um, I'm driving south on the 5 near Koalinga and just saw a car rolling over behind me on the freeway. What kind of vehicle? Oh, um, I know the name. It's one of those, it's like an SUV but smaller. You know, the le lesbian car is what I was going to say. And I'm pretty sure had my PC flag not been flying, she would have filled in the blank with Subaru Outback the same way anyone playing a game of catchphrase or heads up would have. But after witnessing one person get hurt that morning, I couldn't bear the idea of hurting someone else with a potentially insensitive remark. Do you know the color of the vehicle? Maroon, I think. What's the closest exit? Despite the fact it rarely seems to happen, I'd thankfully managed to pull over yards away from a sign. After the dispatcher assured me help was on the way and that the CHP would contact me if they needed any further information, 
I hung up the phone and noticed another vehicle had parked alongside the shoulder behind me. I unclipped my seatbelt and opened my door to an eerily vacant freeway. Traffic was at a standstill in the distance behind a thin haze of heat and gasoline that permeated upward from the asphalt. And though partially obstructed by a semi, I could vaguely make out people rushing toward the involved vehicle, which now rested upside down on the same shoulder where I stood, nearly a mile ahead. Are you guys okay? A middle-aged man and woman stepped out of the white coupe I was approaching. Yeah, are you? Yeah. Do you know what happened? I, I just saw everything in my rearview mirror and pulled over. I don't, I don't know. I, I was asleep and I woke up from him braking so hard. Wait, wait you had to brake? Oh, uh, yeah. It happened in front of you? Oh, yeah. He, he came right between us. I, I thought for sure he was going to hit you. And while he may not have, it was around this moment when reality did. You see, I can also count on one hand the number of accidents I've never been in. Despite living in Los Angeles for nearly 20 years, I haven't experienced so much as a fender bender. Which isn't said to merely brag about my defensive driving skills, though that certainly was but rather to highlight the fact that when that car came darting across the freeway, missing me and my dogs by what would turn out to be a mere millimeter, it was not only the closest I'd ever come to impact, it was the most impacted I'd ever been. For the rest of the three-hour ride home, I drove in complete silence, listening only to the voices in my head that narrated an alternate reality where I ceased to exist. After all, had one thing been different, one millisecond altered, that driver would not only have hit me, he would have undoubtedly ended my life. And I never even would have seen it coming, especially given the fact I hadn't. Presumably, the driver had fallen asleep at the wheel while heading northbound, drifted off into the median before hitting the embankment, and flew across the freeway toward oncoming traffic right in my direction. It wasn't long before my mind took a similar turn of its own desperately connecting the dots as a way to conclude how it was I'd managed to avoid a life-changing, if not life-ending, disaster. My broken cruise control setting, for instance, which magically had started working again that morning. Without it, I'd often find myself fluctuating between 70 and 90 miles per hour, slowing down and speeding up to pass people who didn't know how to properly use the left lane by cutting ahead of them from the right. What if it had still been broken and I hadn't been able to set it at a steady 75? Would I have encountered more traffic that constituted more lane maneuvers on my part? And if so, where would that have put me on the timeline? What if I'd left one second later? Just one second. Suffice it to say, by the time I got back to Los Angeles that afternoon, I was looking at life through a completely different lens. A lens I'd continue to wear well into the following day, when I'd ultimately relayed the story to Lorena. I just can't believe how close it was. I mean, I saw him in his car, clear as day, pressed up against the glass while things just, like, bounced around him. Hmm. I just felt so helpless. Like, to see a person going through something like that and literally not be able to do anything? It's, it's horrifying. I don't even know if he survived or not. So listen, sweetie, I need to run a quick errand on the other side of the hill, and then I'll come to you, and we can decide what we want to do for fireworks tonight, okay? I wasn't sure why I expected much sympathy from her, especially given our friendship's already storied history at this point. But I suppose it had something to do with the fact she constantly referred to herself as one of the only, quote, true liberals, end quote, and constantly preached, and claimed to practice anyway, 
empathy, inclusivity, and community. So not only was her insensitivity surprising, her altogether lack of acknowledgement was far beyond bothersome. Though I clocked it immediately, I wasn't sure how to best express myself amongst all the other feelings I was grappling with. You see, there was a sudden, acute awareness of my own mortality, and when mixed with a certain kind of survivor's guilt, it had been generating all-consuming thoughts and casting upon me a slight depression along with them. After all, I wasn't sure if I'd witnessed the final moments of someone's life or not, and had no way of knowing whatever came of the man in the maroon car anyhow. When Lorena returned about an hour later, things got even more muddled and mired. You ready? For what? To go downtown. I thought you were coming over here and then we were going to decide what we wanted to do together. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. Oh, yeah, I thought I told you. My friends are watching the fireworks downtown and I told them we'd meet them there. No, you didn't tell me. I had like two other invites from my friends that I waited on responding to because you said you didn't want to spend the fourth alone. Well, if you'd rather go with your friends, go for it. I can't now. It's too late. So then tell me what you want to do, sweetie. I guess go downtown, since there's not really any other option at this point. Okay, then let's go. I can't just jump in. I have dogs that I have to plan for. I have to feed them. I have to let them out. Okay, go ahead then. I'll wait here. I couldn't help but detect her short and shameless tone. And as I made my way back to my apartment to prepare to leave for the evening, I started to feel annoyed myself. You see, by this point, Lorena had come in and out of my life multiple times. And while the pattern wouldn't be crystal clear to me for another year still, it was at least starting to take shape at this point. Since she'd exchanged her vows with her husband under the hoppa of her wedding years earlier, I'd only heard from Lorena if and when she was undergoing mass hysterical breakdowns. <laughs> there was the time she needed me to bring her a Xanax in the middle of the night, despite the fact we hadn't spoken in nearly two years and wouldn't again for another two after. Then there were the multiple times she threatened to drink herself to death with the bottle of vodka she kept in her freezer for solely that purpose. And now, after another year of silence, she'd recently resurfaced in the wake of an impending divorce. No matter the state of our friendship, I had always been a loyal shoulder for Lorena to ugly cry on. Always showing up, never asking questions, and never minding the fact she seemed incapable of reciprocity. Whether I was fighting an almond allergy in my early 20s, or undergoing the trauma of a highway collision now in my 30s. And as soon as I sat down in the passenger seat beside her, I felt all the resentment I'd been sitting on swell enough to outmatch what had clearly been some of her own. Ready? No, I'm not. I'm really upset. I'm sensing that. I tell you that I could have been killed in an accident and that I witnessed a man potentially lose his life. Nothing happened to you, Rachel. It did, though. No, it didn't. Your car wasn't hit. You weren't hurt. You're fine. I've been in actual car accidents where there was actually something to be upset about. That was the other thing about Lorena. She loved to devalidate people by comparing their experiences to her own, which were always much, much worse. I'm dealing with real problems, like a divorce. So I'm sorry, but I just don't have time to deal with other people's little dramas. Well, maybe I don't either. And it was then... For the first time in my life, I realized I really didn't. Welcome back, everybody. 
So season two is all about self-care and removing toxicity from your life, which is something that's very hard to do, especially when you can't even identify that your life is holding it, let alone so much. And this story is kind of the beginning of when I started to do that on my journey. In the first season, we talked about how a bitch is made through three ways, heartbreak, injustices, and acts of God. And one thing that we didn't get into too much of last season was how heartbreak can be caused by friendships. And I think we're going to see a lot of that this season. You're going to witness how my heart was broken by many female friends of mine, especially when we talk about when I started to remove the toxicity from my life. So we first met Lorena last week in our episode, No Place to Call Home, where um, the two men I was living with, their dogs, they kept growling at her and then eventually bit her, or so she said, and sent her running back down the elevator. So that's who Lorena is. So the food poisoning thing happened when I was younger in my 20s, and it was kind of more in the infancy phase of our friendship. I guess I can't even really say infancy. It was probably maybe like during the adolescence. I'd known her for a couple years at this point. But I don't think I really gave it enough credit at the time. Looking back, it's easy to see how it really foreshadowed what would ultimately become the theme of our friendship, which was all give and no take. So I want to talk about setting boundaries within friendships because I think that that is a concept most people are very unfamiliar with or don't consider as a need when it comes to friendships. We think of needing to do that in romantic relationships, but not relationships within the workplace or within the friend space. The reason why it's important to do that initially from the get-go, like anything, is because you lay the foundation and set the example for how things are going to be from the beginning. If you allow this in the beginning, someone's going to perceive that you will always allow it until you make a massive change or shift or really are very clear on saying this isn't going to fly anymore, which if you're like me, who is what they call an avoidant, I don't really like confrontation as much as I like to think I do. Um, You don't like having to deal with any sort of issue head on. It's better to just sweep things under the rug, which is definitely a pattern that I've had in every relationship in my life. We think that that's going to be easier than dealing with it head on, and it never is, right? You sweep things under the rug, eventually you're going to trip over that rug and fall flat on your face, which I have done on multiple occasions. So that's why it's really important to set boundaries in the beginning with anybody you meet, and of course, most importantly, within yourself, because it's impossible to set boundaries with other people if you don't have them on your own, which is why when we started this whole journey, there was so much talk about boundaries. So the story ends by Lorena saying to me, maybe I just don't have time for other people's dramas right now. And I want to talk about the difference between traumas and dramas because they are very different things. So first of all, it is very dangerous to improperly label the two. If someone has a trauma and you refer to it as a drama, it is not only incredibly insulting and devalidating It really minimizes someone's experience. And that was something that happened in our friendship all the time. Anytime I had an experience, it was minimized by her comparing it to something that she had gone through. And you have to be very, very careful when you do that because not only does it make you look like an asshole, (laughs) 
it actually creates a lot of toxicity in yourself by victimizing yourself and thinking that only the worst of the worst things happen to you. So drama is something unnecessary that we either choose to have to deal with or not. Trauma is something that happens to us that is beyond our control that we have to deal with. And a lot of times when we have a trauma, it's exceptionally hard because we have no former experience in that particular situation to know how to deal with it. So that process can be very time-consuming and tedious, not just for the person going through it, but for the people close to them that are witnessing it. The trauma that I experienced with this rollover accident was in being a bystander. Yes, I had never been in an accident before, so coming that close was its own sort of traumatic realization. But what I found to be the most difficult aspect of this situation to process was watching somebody go through something so horrific and not being able to do a fucking thing about it. I mean, even talking about it now, like my, my body is starting to shake because it just makes me, oh man, it just takes me back to that place. Like seeing somebody in a review mirror, like hugging their airbag and being thrown around in their car. It, it's like time is going too fast, but too slow, but it's not moving at all. You're so far away from being able to help that person. It's a level of helplessness I cannot describe, but the feeling is just gut-wrenching. As humans, good humans, we, we always want to help somebody when we see them in peril. Like when people typically trip or something, you don't know if they get hurt initially, you always just are like pushed forward and you're like, oh my God, are you okay? Like even if you don't know that person. So feeling like not only was I completely far away, I was trapped inside my own vehicle, belted down, driving and being, you know, pushed away by gravity away from this person. And I was just sitting there like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, I didn't know what to do. And I pulled over as soon as I could. But I think my depression that followed was in not knowing what happened to that guy. And by the time I stopped, I was way too far away to go back and, and see how that person was. And honestly, I didn't even know if I'd be able to. I didn't know if I could handle it. I didn't know what I would find when I got there. So I think that there was a lot of things, there were a lot of things I was grappling with after this happened. Survivor's guilt, just feeling guilty I couldn't do anything. And then, of course, the fear of the unknown, where I was fantasizing about what had happened or what could have happened if this person died or not. Now, fortunately, my sister-in-law is a CHP officer, so ultimately I was able to find out that that person did survive and they were fine, ultimately. They were not even in critical condition, which is so baffling to me because it was, again, just such a horrific sight to see. But I think for anything that I go through, and this is why I go to therapy and particularly uh, participate in talk therapy, hell, it's why I'm even doing this podcast for fuck's sake. Part of my journey in healing is talking about it. Uh, when people tell me what they're going through, I always listen and then try to validate their experience by then being like, yes, I hear you. And also I relate to you because when this particular thing happened to me, I felt this way, which I imagine is how you're feeling. 
So I guess I always kind of look for people to validate me that in that same way, which I realize it's not how everybody works. But what I didn't anticipate was having a very close friend of mine completely devalidate my experience altogether and to the point where she didn't even want to fucking hear about it, which was so crazy. But again, this is a person that I would ultimately come to find was extremely toxic. And why is because she had a lot of toxicity within herself. Now, I've heard a lot of therapists say, and I love this phrase because I think it's so true, uh, healthy people attract healthy people and unhealthy people attract unhealthy people. And when we were brought together, we were both in very unhealthy places in life. And then every time we sort of like came together and grew apart, it was always because we were seemingly healthy and happy, right? As I referenced in the story, I only ever heard from this person when her life was in shambles. And I'm sure from her perspective, she probably feels the same way about me. But what was funny is one of my biggest complaints of our friendship back then was that we never had happy times together. We never did anything fun, which should have been a very big fucking red flag banged over my head. But again, I think I tend to, as an Aquarian, because I love to reference astrology, uh, I love people and I empathize with people, as I referenced in last week's episode, and I do it to a fault. So there were some things that I didn't get to in the story. And one of them was a phone call I had with Lorena. I had gotten pretty fucking high before she had called me. (laughs) So when she just started, it's a funny thing happens to me when I'm high. And this is why I love being stoned so much. Like the world becomes very black and white, whereas I walk around in a world that is very gray and nuanced and, you know, devil's advocate. But when I'm stoned, things are very black and white. I actually joke about it with my boyfriend. He talks about guy brain all the time. And I guess when I'm stoned, I go into guy brain, where it's just very matter of fact and simple. I'm completely incapable of overthinking things, which is fucking miraculous. But when she started yelling at me, the only thought I had was, well, this doesn't feel good. Mm, I don't want to fucking deal with this. And so I just put the phone down and let her go off. And then I walked away and started doing dishes and cooking. And (laughs) I literally was just like, I didn't want to hang up on her because I didn't want her to use that against me or for that to put more fuel onto a fire. I just didn't want to deal with it. (laughs) It was killing my buzz, man. (laughs) So I put the phone down. Uh, But one of a few things that I remember her saying when I picked up the phone again and she had like seemingly calmed down and by the way had no idea that I'd left and I think I let her ramble for like 10 minutes but I picked up the phone and I really calmly said to her like you know look this was my experience it is not a drama it's a trauma and she immediately bit my head off and started telling me like why I had no right to feel the way I felt even going so far as to bring up something else that had happened a few months earlier with me these two girls had moved in to my neighborhood into their first apartment after having graduated from UCLA and their first night in a guy broke in and raped them or tried to rape them and luckily they got away and this was two blocks away from me and it was across the street from my very first apartment in the same neighborhood so that affected me this neighborhood is so safe it's in one of the best or better parts of LA and just crime is very very minimal there 
the most that had happened at that point was like, you know, car break-ins. And it had been months since something like that had happened. So when the rape happened, it was very like, whoa. And I remember talking about it. Again, I like to talk my way through things I'm feeling. And she, again, at that point, told me why it shouldn't bother me because she had had her house actually broken into. So she chose to rehash this whole argument well, we're talking about this car accident and I'm stoned. Honestly, I'm not very argumentative, which, you know, was really working in her favor. But she, I had said to her, you know, look, people are different. We have different triggers. We react differently to things. We have different tolerances, opinions, viewpoints, thresholds. She did have somebody break into her house. And at the time, she was living alone because the divorce was going on. She was separated. Someone broke into her house in broad daylight, stole all of her jewelry. I could not imagine coming back into my home and and feeling like someone else's energy was still there or had been. I'm sorry. I would fucking move. I would not be able to stay there. Good for Lorena that she could. I think that's fucking rad. I couldn't do it. I would move. I'd go live with my parents. That is just a fundamental difference in the two of us. Does that make her or me any less of a woman or any less adult? No, we're just different. And this was kind of the point I was trying to hammer home to her, and she just couldn't fucking get it. And I think that was the moment I realized, I really took a step back, and I realized we were just on different planes, both developmentally and emotionally. And after that, I kind of just seized communication, then proceeded to witness her just spiraling and going off the rails. She would send me very uh, emotionally abusive texts to the point where I had to block her. And the reason I blocked her was because I just was in, in such a emotional state that I didn't want to expose myself to, again, that toxicity. And it was very easy to see something tangible as toxic. So these text messages were toxic and I didn't want that in my life. So I blocked them so I didn't have to see them. And then ultimately I unblocked her. All the texts came in and I had my therapist read them. And then my therapist communicated to me in a very healthy, non-emotional way what she was feeling, thinking, etc which naturally then made me soften and want to reach out to her and, like, clear the air. But in doing that, I only perpetuated a persistent problem that could and would only get bigger and bigger until ultimately (laughs) there was no going back. And, um, yeah, The story about that will probably be the season finale of this season, if not the one before. And you'll get to hear all about why that was the biggest heartbreak I've ever experienced. But going back to why it's so important to remove toxicity from your life, it's again the attracting the healthy and unhealthy. So this was the beginning when I realized, hey, I don't have to have this in my life if I don't want to. And giving myself that permission was the first step, but then actually going through the motions and doing what would need to be done to put that into effect was a lot harder of a process. But in distancing myself from the drama, at least temporarily anyway, it afforded me the time and space to work on myself more clearly and objectively. 
A lot of times we pick up on other people's problems and stressors and then we take them on as our own or we take our perceived perception of us through their eyes on and then we start acting in a way where we're overly self-aware of how our actions might play into that perceived perception. Hopefully you were able to follow that. Um, We can see our patterns and the effects of them on ourselves far more clearly when we are in isolation. And it's, it's funny now, I'm recording this commentary now while we're in quarantine. So the whole world is in isolation, which I think it is a great time to be you know, take hitting the pause button and taking a moment to really do some self-reflection and self-work. But most importantly, when you have a positive experience with yourself, then you start to feel the positive experiences with other people more. And then the negative experiences really start to stick out like a sore thumb. And you're just like, why am I putting up with this? Like, bye. Which is eventually what happened. So what I'm saying in a more eloquent way, is that you hold more space for positivity, for self-improvement and evolution when you don't have that toxicity in your life. So next week, we are going to talk about the immediate results you'll start to see when that toxicity starts to dissipate in another news story that I'm going to be sharing with you about an experience at summer camp. So uh, tune in for that one. That's really fun. We will talk about It's not really a heartbreak, but it is a story about love. Those are always the most fun to write about and create, especially just because of the reenactments. It's really, really fun. And we had some really great actors contribute to to those reenactments. So I'm excited for you to hear that. But that's pretty much it for this week. Thank you guys for listening. As always, be sure to check back in next week and make sure that you check out the new How Bitches Are Made website. I've just completely redesigned it and I'm super excited for you to see all the features we've added. You can listen to the podcast directly on the website. Uh, You can find links to all of our episode references. You can see who we've used as our cast in the reenactments, as well as find uh, informational worksheets and things that we talk about in each episode. You'll also be able to check out the new blog, which I'm super, super excited about. It's got all sorts of different reads on there. We've got more and more contributors coming in to write about their experiences and perspectives. And as always, I invite you guys to contribute yourselves. Please email us at info at howbitchesaremade.com with either a story that you'd like us to share with our listeners or a story that you would like to share with us. Or you can message us on our Instagram or Twitter, which is on Instagram at HowBitchesAreMade and Twitter at HabamTweets. We really want your guys' feedback. We'd like to hear what you like about the show, the concept, what you don't, what you think we can improve on. If you have questions, if you need advice, let us know. We want this to be a big community that is just very supportive and helpful for everyone that can relate to what we're all going through because we are all going through it. As always, you can follow me. I'm at the Rachel Melvin across all platforms. And I think that's it, guys. So we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. How Bitches Are Made is written and produced by Rachel Melvin. A special thank you to this week's guests who helped with our reenactments for this episode. Cameron Gari, Mayata Walsh, Kelly Jackal, Whitney Howard, Vanessa Moon, Mark Kapka, and as always, Steve Tom. Steve Tom.